0: Welcome to Bureau Happold in Conversation. This is a space where we can talk about the big issues in engineering and consulting, things that affect all of us working in design and construction. This podcast looks at a big question, probably one of the biggest. What does the future hold for our cities? One of the biggest problems that those that manage cities are facing is the question of infrastructure. What do we do when it just isn't useful anymore? Examples of this include big out-of-town shopping centres, office blocks, ports, railway lines, canals. A lot of our previously vital structures redundant, or in other words, they become stranded assets. What do we do? Well, we've got some people with some answers that might help, and I have two of them right here. Bureau Happel consultants Richard Ainsley, and Roger Savage, welcome. Uh,
1: Good morning. morning. Yeah, I am based in London. I lead our uh, interdisciplinary consulting team, which is a mixture of um, economists and urban planners at its core, but includes a whole range of other specialities as well. And um, my background is an urban planner.
2: So I'm also within the um, city's consulting team, Bureau Hapold, based in London. Um, I'm, I'm an urban planner by background. And um, I've been uh, leading uh, Bureau Hapold's stranded assets work in the UK. I
0: think we'll start off um, with defining a stranded asset.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we see stranded assets as, as being defined as um, an asset in the built environment. So um, that could be across a range of different types, be it utilities. Uh, transport infrastructure, could be uh, leisure facilities and uh, a range of different other um, uh, types of built assets. Um, but really, we see them as as an asset that is either currently failing or could be failing, and they've become devalued. Um, and there's a number of reasons why that might have, have happened. So we've, we we've sort of identified uh, six uh, drivers for change that are, are making assets stranded, so that could be regulatory change, so maybe stricter environmental regulations. Uh, it could be physical change, so something like climate change um, with sea levels rising or, or what have you. Um, technological change, so something's becoming obsolete. Uh, cultural changes, so where the habits of the of, of the population are changing and again sort of impacting on an asset. And then really two economic ones, so the macroeconomic change, where maybe business decisions are uh, changed as a result of, say, globalisation or the microeconomic changes. So maybe um, things like uh, a loss of competitive advantage um, impacting on, on businesses.
1: Quite often we'll um, come at stranded assets from a number of different angles. Um, uh, the types of, of people that approach us include um, asset managers, uh, asset owners, uh, businesses, as well as communities. Um, and what we do is, is work with them in terms of a process for uh, responding and managing change. And managing change.
0: What examples do we have in the UK of this kind of work?
2: Really, the, the, we're getting some examples where um, an asset owner is coming to us and they're looking for advice on how they may transform their assets. So um, we've got a particular example at the moment where we're, we're working with um, Edinburgh City Council on looking at a, uh, a former gasometer um, in Granton, um, which is obviously no long, longer used because of the way technology's changed. They no longer no longer need that. Um, but the, the the asset sits within uh, quite a deprived part of the city, um, and is obviously um, a bit of an eyesore, and is is really performing um, no real function for the city. Um, so, so our um, um, lighting team in, in Edinburgh have been have been working on, on that to look at how um, you can. Um, transform the look and feel of, of, of uh, the gas holder, um, but we're, we're now uh, working with them um, and looking more broadly at uh, well, what could the actual use of that uh, asset be. So what we're um, going to be doing is exploring and workshopping with um, the, the city around um, how we can transform that
1: asset and bring it back to a more valuable use. Okay, that's really
0: interesting. Are there any other projects that you're working on with-
1: I would say um, the scale is an important dimension of this. As as well as looking at individual assets, we also work at the community and at the city scale. So the town of Folkestone down in Kent was one where the sort of uh, town had become a bit down at hill because of uh, changes at its port and the closure of railway station and its um, relatively peripheral loca- location as a coastal town in the UK. Um, so we worked together with a whole series of local partners on developing a, a strategy for regenerating the town and establishing a new cultural district on the basis of uh, artistic and, and cultural uh, infrastructure development. And that has delivered results in terms of drawing new people into the town and um, helping to revive the high street and also attract new housing and residents to the town. And in the US we've also worked at the scale of a whole city, in the case of Detroit, which has suffered major economic and structural change as a result of changes in the automotive industry. And we've we've worked across a whole series with a whole series of different stakeholders in developing a citywide strategy. As well as on individual assets uh, within the city,
2: you know, you might have a either an asset owner or an interested stakeholder like a local authority who might uh, come to 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 us for for, for advice. Um, but but certainly there, there are examples um, uh, around the UK and globally where some of this has been uh, bottom up mm-hmm. driven because people have seen an asset in their area that. Um, is, is, is derelict and underused. And if you take, for example, the um, uh, disused branch railway lines in the UK, um, often they've been uh, community-driven uh, opportunities where people have um, sought to use that as a, a leisure and recreation asset and, and um, have transformed that according to the, what, what the local community wants. So I think it's a bit of, a bit
1: of both, really, that sometimes. How
2: do
0: they, how do they get funded? Who, who funds these projects generally?
1: Yeah, it, sometimes seeking and making the case for funding and developing that, that as a strategy is, is why people come to us at Bureau Haphold. Um, because we can work with uh, all the different partners and stakeholders with an interest in the asset and uh, work, develop an economic and viable approach for, um, for, for managing that change. Um, I think for some of our more corporate clients, Um, We find that often they'll be looking at their assets on a regular basis, either as part of their regular asset management activities in the case of higher education campuses, um, maybe local authorities, and they they would be perhaps taking a more strategic look than their just day-to-day refurbishment and updating of sites, particularly where there's pressures for expansion of activities or reconfiguration of activities and sites. Um, with increasing student numbers in the case of education. Um, Often in the case of um, asset managers, um, again, we offer kind of portfolio review services. They would be valuing their assets each year and looking at business decisions um, and working with the end users to uh, work out how they can best respond to change. So um, a most obvious example is probably changes on the high street that we've seen in the UK as a result of technological change and the need to to, um, repurpose some uh, out-of-town retail parks, shopping centres, and and so on, as as the changes brought about by um, online shopping and move to the internet have have impacted on towns and institutional and community uses. And
0: I suppose it's anticipating that change and the change can come either quickly or slowly.
1: Large organisations tend to um, have some more strategic business planning um, within their business and will be more responsive so we've been working with a major house builder on how to respond to uh, climate change and legislation around sustainability and what that means for their portfolio of sites and what they need to do to retrofit properties to respond to uh, net zero commitments, for example. In other cases, the, the owner of the business is focused very much on the day-to-day and, and sudden changes or shocks to their business can, can mean they need to um, review options um, uh, in, in re- to react to change and, and sometimes that, that can come as a shock. So we're very well used to to coming in and either working alongside them in terms of their strategic planning processes and business planning processes or or just really to to, to come in um, and assemble a team to kind of um, deploy and and you know rapidly assess um, options for what to do next is, in, in is the Brexit case
0: one of those, one of those examples could you say Yes, like yes, yeah. change.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously it ended up being not quite so rapid yeah. <laughs> with the, the delays, <laughs> the various delays to the deadline. Um, but I think, um, yeah, we have seen some of those changes flow through um, either directly or indirectly to a number of different sectors in the economy, um, particularly relating to, to manufacturing. Um, other sectors, it has just created uncertainty, but perhaps prompted them to think, more strategically about their investment decisions and, and their business planning. And again, we have seen the um, kind of increase in, in inquiries and, and so on for, for, for helping, helping clients. Quite, quite often we find that there's a, a cycle, particularly in terms of property investment, whereas um, the, the value of an asset declines, the amount of activity it supports declines, they become underutilized. Um, and, and then, but initially there isn't perhaps, because of the existing use value of the property, the um, uh, the economic case for redeveloping an asset. So you tend to find that they fall into disuse for quite a period of time and often they become overlooked and they would be written down in terms of their value on the balance sheet but not actively managed. So and um, we find find that in quite a number of situations and and what would people you say
0: the trigger point is for bureau hapel to get involved in something
1: yeah i think i think it's about there needs to be some impetus for change so either um, there's a, a, an economic imperative uh, sometimes it can be um, uh, as a result of regulation sometimes it can just be around leadership Um, maybe a change in in political situation within a local area uh, or a a more grassroots um, action in order to to prompt it. So we've seen people even uh, look at crowdsourcing and using social media to draw attention to particular assets in in some towns and cities. Looking ahead over the next few years, I think what we're seeing is that with change being constant, Um, there is increasing awareness of, of um, assets and, how to man- and and the need to manage them more actively. Um, I think what we're increasingly being approached for is it, by clients is to help them look beyond their day-to-day business and to track emerging trends and, um, and, and different forces affecting their business and their area. Uh, and helping them to almost anticipate change or at least um, understand the uncertainties that they're, they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're seeing more moves towards that and, and developing more um, uh, evidence base and um, information to support those decision-making. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think one of the barriers is, is around language and, and communication. And I think why people come to Bureau Hapold is is that we talk the language of both the asset manager, the asset owner. We've got deep sector understanding um, from our core engineering um, business and disciplines across quite a very broad range of areas. And we can also um, work with communities and help to align stakeholders and and broker discussions and visioning around the future of, of assets. Um, because one of the reasons why things don't happen is because people are operating in silos and it's really our integrated approach and understanding with um, bringing that, that kind of social perspective as well as a business perspective um, that is why um, we're finding people are approaching us.
0: Thank you both. Earlier today, I caught up with Alice Shea, one of my Bureau Habel colleagues in the New York office, who is working in this area of urban renewal,
3: and here's what she had to say about the topic. Uh, My background is in urban planning, urban design, and urban strategy. So um, many of my projects have been focused on transformation of public realm assets um, from defunct, underutilized systems into new amenities that can be used for recreation, Uh, environmental uh, remediation, for new cultural uses, uh, for activation around tourism, a whole realm of opportunities. We know that
0: Alice's, uh, one of Alice's key projects recently has been her work on the Erie Canal.
3: The Erie Canal is over 350 miles long. It runs from Albany to Buffalo. It is a massive infrastructural system. It is a canal that has transformed three times over its lifetime up to this point. Um, It's the reason that New York City is the economic powerhouse that it is today, because it opened up trade to the Midwest uh, from the Atlantic. Um, But unfortunately, due to uh, the advent of the railroads, containerization, and other more modes of shipping, the Erie Canal is no longer uh, serving the purpose that it used to when it was first created and then adapted in the 20th century. So, we were brought on to support the New York Power Authority, along with the New York State Canal Corporation, to identify opportunities to reposition this, you know, what we call stranded asset, um, to identify ways that it could really be Used for the 21st century. So, this was an incremental process of ideation and strategy development. Initially, we launched an international ideas competition to garner new concepts and uh, thoughts and ideas around how the Erie Canal could be used for today and into the future. We received over 145 submissions from that process. It garnered so much excitement and energy. Um, the agencies that we worked for said, you know, Actually, we we realized there's a real potential here, and so we then organized um, a statewide task force that brought together six different state agencies and over 25 key constituents, um, key stakeholders representing key constituency groups, um, to come together and meet over the course of six months to evaluate ideas that come from the, had come from the competition as well as other ideas that had been. Uh, brought up through this process. We also ran um, a statewide community engagement process and survey to ensure that all of the public was able to weigh in on this process and you know share what they liked, what they didn't like, what were the opportunities, what were the challenges around the canal system. We worked with that set of stakeholders and state agencies to identify a, a range of different strategies um, you know, when you're looking at assets and you know the transformation of these old pieces of infrastructure, it's you know really beneficial to think in a broad way. You know these assets served a pre- previous purpose, you know, shipping in the case of the Erie Canal, but it's just no longer economically viable due to technologies of today. And so how could actually this waterway that is incredibly well managed, it is a huge mechanized system, actually provide other benefits? such as um, preventing flooding, providing water to upstate farming communities, uh, remediating wetlands. Um, It has an opportunity to uh, reconnect uh, riparian corridors that have been disconnected. There's an opportunity to uh, make it a real destination for tourism and have it be this string of sustainable and healthy uh, transportation across the state. So based on this process of garnering ideas, getting input from the public and key stakeholders, uh, bringing together this task force of major um, state agencies and constituencies, and then evaluating these strategies with technical experts across various fields, we worked with these state agencies to come up with a plan for implementation. Biggest challenge is communicating the future potentials for whatever this type of infrastructure or stranded asset may be. You know, communities, individuals can be very invested in the way that they see the system today or in the past. And, you know, working with communities, working with agencies to understand what is the potential. You don't have to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on these infrastructures for a previous purpose that is not actually delivering to the constituencies of you know, the government, which is the entity that oversees this uh, piece of uh, infrastructure. So, you know, when there is a shifting in operations, you there's ways that you can, you know, support people to really dream big and think of what the future can be. Mm-hmm. Competitions are great ways to do that because you get ideas from beyond the usual experts. Bringing together task forces are great and community engagement is particularly key um, both as a way to get ideas, but also to share ideas that have emerged through other steps in the process.
0: And what would you, why would you say this sort of work is important? Do you think it's important for the future of our cities and communities?
3: I, well, big pieces of infrastructure like the Erie Canal or like our subways or, uh, you know, like our roadways, much of this is you know, reaching kind of 150, 100-year-old 100 age frame. So a lot of its design-build life is coming to the end of what it was originally planned for. So we're seeing a lot of pieces of infrastructure that are wearing out, that need either significant capital investment or they just need to be decommissioned in a certain way. Um, but as we're reaching these modes of transformation, one, the kind of need for adaptation of, infrastructure of the past and then two the ways that we're existing in our urban uh, areas that's also transforming how we're getting around the types of buildings we're living in how we're living together the way that we're using open space and so there's a real opportunity to rethink the land and assets that we have for the future a future that is more sustainable more equitable and provides greater opportunity for residents
0: So to finish off this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about another U.S. project. And if you know Bureau Happold, you will probably have heard of it and may even have been there. It's the Highline, of course, in New York. And here's Christabel Correa and Craig Schwitter to tell us more.
4: So I'm, I'm Christabel Correa. I'm a principal in the
5: New York office and I'm a structural engineer. Uh, I'm Craig Schwitter. I'm a principal in the New York office and I helped found Buro Happold in the United States. My first encounter with the High Line is uh, going out to bars with a bunch of buddies and climbing on it in the probably the 1980s. And, uh, you know, that was that was a very popular destination. There was nothing up there. It was was abandoned. So it was kind of cool. Yeah, I remember seeing like
4: actual carcasses in the street, actually in front of some of those places in the meatpacking district when I first moved here, like, you know, it was all cobblestones that had been ripped up and Mm. there was like, you know, there was like basically blood in the streets. Like you could smell, you could smell that it was still being used as a, Mm. as a meatpacking area. And then there was this rusting hulk that was kind of over everything that of course, every time it rained, it was dripping and leaking. I mean, it definitely had, it definitely had character. I think that one of the interesting things about these stranded assets is that, you know, we don't want to sort of, when we renovate our cities and make them better, we don't want to lose our, character and sanitize our cities so that they we can't tell what was there before mm-hmm. i think one of the most wonderful things about this is that the preservation of the Highland has kind of preserved sort of the character of that area as being like a you know a working area with uh things moving in and out and you know it's something that would never be built now but it's still it's a remnant it's really interesting actually when you
5: look at that whole waterfront mm-hmm. yeah i mean a, a lot of people don't realize that the Highland's is relatively new i mean it's it's you know It's only in service for maybe 50 years, uh, abandoned since the 60s. And I I think the, the, the Sternfeld photographs, I mean, which were essentially commissioned by the Friends of the High Line. But when the photographer, Joel Sternfeld, started to take some pictures of what the High Line was, as a sort of, you know, as vegetation and and other nature had start to reclaim some of the areas of it, these sort of tall grasses and even trees that had grown up on the High Line, it just captured everybody's imagination. Uh, It was really smart and uh, really um, impactful that that there is this element of infrastructure that had sort of, you know, had been forgotten about. And we um, we got engaged with the High Line in the uh, competition, which was uh, the, originally they had an ideas competition to, you know, there was some crazy ideas like a mile and a half long swimming pool. I love um, that one. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And this is in the early 2000s. I, I mean, reflect on the fact that the the city of New York had, had signed the demolition orders to remove large portions. Of the the High Line as we know it now. I mean, other portions were removed down down in the in the West Village earlier. So the Giuliani administration had had very was very close to to, to taking it completely down, and and the uh, you know, the architectural community and the and the the administration that came in after that really you know fought you know for the um, preservation of it and the competition that we won. Ultimately, was with uh, James Corner, Field Operations, and uh, um, Dillo Scavizio, Renfro, um, and uh, it was really interesting. I remember the 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 um, the pitch was to not, you know, to to restore it, but to respect it, to to make it a public amenity that wasn't um, that you didn't charge to go up there, that it wasn't covered in Gelato stands and retail. it was it was something that was almost a a lung or something like that for the city. It was something that people in the area could you know freely walk on and and, and breathe. It was I mean,
4: it's I, Craig, I think it's it's interesting how you talk about that ideas competition because I have such a strong memory of that. like it it was so smart the way friends of the High Line kind of put this thing together and created all this excitement i remember that the they had all the models and they were all in grand central and people were just kind of like super excited about thinking about what this thing might turn into and i just remember the yeah, other were some wild and zany ones you were talking about the one with the swing pool i remember also the one that was a gigantic roller coaster hmm. that would take you from one end to the other i mean there was there were so many good ideas and i remember that whole neighborhood like that everyone could sense that there was so much potential because sort of the the waterfront was being reactivated there were all these galleries i mean people were really hanging out in that neighborhood and it just it just seemed like that whole area was poised to become something really really wonderful for the city
5: It, it is true and and i think there's a lot of lessons that have been learned about the high line and 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 the reason why it's it's tried to be replicated uh, in in so many places and some successful, some not in that. I think it's a turning point in, in planning to understand there's a huge value to this, um, to this asset. There's a huge value to the sort of character of, of, of trying to maintain, you know, infrastructure in this way, shape and form and reinvent it because there's a, there's a sort of a, a grounding, to it of the fabric of the city that people really appreciate it becomes a place that is definable and and very difficult to replicate and it one interesting um element now the high line is when you're you're sitting up towards the top of the high line uh, of course it loops around hudson yards but you can actually access now hudson yards Um, from the High Line and you know as much as you know Hudson Yards is a absolutely brand spanking new development but it feels not of New York City it doesn't and as soon as you actually walk from the the sort of huge plaza with in in Hudson Yards and you kind of cross that dividing line to the the High Line all of a sudden at least I do I feel like I'm back in New York City yeah. And, and and there is a there's a huge there's a huge value to that from the perspective of perception of the obviously tourists want to experience that, too, because they want to they want to go to where the real New York is. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that the other thing that we haven't talked about is that the
4: views that you get from the Highline are actually absolutely magnificent. I mean, in terms of the views of the river and the fact that it just kind of like presents this sort of like panorama of. The waterfront and you can kind of see the history of New York, you know, as you as you look around, you can see things that were built in the, you know, the 1800s and the 1900s and 1930, you can see, and you can even see, you know, Hudson Yards, you can see it all it's all kind of laid out there for you. You know, I think it's interesting what you were talking about the in terms of sort of people feeling like they're in the city. Um, I think we all crave a little bit of friction with our with our co-new yorkers and i think that the you know spaces where we run into people and we will like you know we actually have to deal with other people can be kind of refreshing in a in a world where we're all sort of like in front of our screens a lot so i think that you know in terms of providing a space for the city i think the the highline is just a wonderful addition um and you know they've had so many really amazing sort of art installations too there's a lot of like um, artists that have taken advantage of the spaces that have been created and have like put in stuff that's sort of really, you know, asks a lot of questions and kind of engages people. It it's amazing how it's become kind of, you know, something that people do. They say they get up in the morning and say oh, I'm going to go walk the High Line, you know, and it's I think it's it's very different from just saying I'm you know I'm going to go to the park. It's just it's kind of like you know that you're going to be engaged and you're going to see people. It's a different sort of experience. What I think
5: the the real story of the High Line is how it has just driven a Big chunk of of the economy of that area. I mean, the High Line, in and of itself, now generates you know somewhere in the range of seventy five million to one hundred million dollars of of tax revenue a year for for New York City. Even though it's no, not one tourist charges you know is gets charged to actually walk on it. That's that's remarkable. I mean, the High Line has paid for itself, it's paid back for itself multiple times already. In terms of any of the money that the city put into it it, it the economic story behind the value of that asset is just it's it's an incredible win-win you know for the city for that part of the city for the the residents of that part of the city for the business owners for the development community uh, it's really remarkable um and and i again i think that story is is getting to be pretty well understood and that's why so many people want to replicate this particularly in in areas of of maybe distressed cities or or areas that cities have very strong fabric you know in the you know i'm the midwest or or other other rust belt cities particularly in the united states but it could be also in lots of other areas that there is a a real economic argument for this um, and that, that that just makes the entire piece of the high line that much more Interesting as a story. I mean, I I would say that
4: like I I mean, kind of echoing what Craig is saying. I mean, I think that that there are these potentially to, the potential to lock to unlock these things is amazing. And I, I I look at these things so much about sort of the character of the city and like you know preserve. I think it's important to preserve things and value them. I mean, things that you know not not everything is so obvious as a as a beautiful building. There's you know there's an you know an ugly an ugly railway overpass is also has a cultural value it can be turned into something i mean just to to be able to see that and to, to be able to see that that's part of who you are as a city is super important i think it has to do with identities and and you know making sure that your the place that you live is yours and it has its own identity i think that's really important in terms of sort of a a civic and civic engagement of people with their cities so i think these are this is great that people are looking at their cities and saying
5: you know we have some really cool stuff here we can go places with this we did not expect this. We did not see this coming. I, I, I would uh, suffice to say, I think in the earlier part of my career, I would have said new buildings are what makes pure Apple, pure Apple, iconic new interventions in buildings, you know, the the Louvre or, or something of that nature in Abu Dhabi. Um, and yet I think as I've, you know as, as we've grown up around the High Line and we've understood its power and we've started to do other projects such as the Detroit main train station the renovation of that in, in Detroit we've started to understand that these projects are, are as iconic and even more powerful than those new buildings because there's a, there's a value and, a, and honestly a reward both professionally and, and economically and culturally to restoring, repairing, you know and reusing this type of fabric in cities. It's really special.
0: You have been listening to Bureau Happled in Conversation where we discuss big issues in engineering and consulting. Catch up with the rest of our conversations on iTunes, Google Play, Castbox, Castro, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you've heard, please do share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Until then, see you next time on Bure Happold in conversation.